And um, just for the sake of uh, a very brief review, there, there's been a number of weeks between, the la- between now and the last time that we learned. Uh, essentially what Rav Moshe Chaim Litzata is developing here is that the feature of God, which is the most central and the most dynamic one for us to develop in terms of developing a, an understanding and appreciation and hence a closeness to God, was the fact that God is one, Echad, that He is one. And uh, what Ramash Chaim Latzata essentially did was, up to this point, he just proved through all of the different uh, verses in the, in the prophets and the scriptures which speak about the tremendous blessing that's going to come to the world when everybody is going to know that Hashem Echad, that Hashem is one. And essentially what Ramash Chaim Latzata is saying is that if uh, if you're trying to explain to somebody the, the greatest thing that's going to happen, which is essentially what the prophets are talking about in the times of Mashiach, and this is identified as the greatest thing to come to this world, uh, so it necessitates us to really analyze why this is such an involved concept and why we have to wait so long to get to this concept. Uh, uh, most of us, when we talk about Hashem Echad, that God is one, we know what this is. There is one God in the sense of God as a creator or a sustainer um, of, of what He has uh, created or His involvement in, in what He created and sustains. And there is essentially only one God, finished. And so you said it in two sentences and three sentences, and that's the end of it. And to assume that all of the Nevi'im, all of the prophets, and all of Scripture talks, don't worry, there'll be a day when everybody's going to believe this. You know, so it doesn't mean me and you. It just means we're waiting for the rest of the world. It, it's really not so, because we know that the Navi spoke to us. The prophets spoke to us, as well as he spoke on a global, uh, in a global way. And therefore, obviously, there's something a lot deeper and a lot more significant to what we mean when we say God is one. Now, what we dealt with in the last class was we spoke about the concept of God is one and His name is one. And we had a very involved class all about the concepts of Shema Yisrael. And for those of you that weren't able to be here, that is that the whole thing is available on tape. All right, so what we're going to do today is we're going to try to begin developing all of the concepts of what Hashem Echad really means. When we say that God is one, He is unique, what do we really mean by that? Why is it such a deep concept? Why is it a concept that we hope to get to, that we hope to ascend to spiritually, that we can be there? It seems to be rather simple. What is it all about? Now, this isn't an effort to make something simple difficult. I mean, that's not what learning is supposed to be. But, uh, but by suggestion of what all of the prophets speak about as this being something very deep and something very great, we obviously missed something along the way. What is it that we missed along the way? And this is what uh, the author wants to get into now, and this is what we'll, we'll start with, and we'll develop this slowly. There's a lot of, a lot of very um, far-reaching implications in everything that Rav Moshe Chaim Litzat is going to say now. Some of it we're going to look at and we're going to think that it's simple, but when we think more deeply into it, and we will talk out loud here, 
we'll see that there's a, a tremendous amount in terms of day-to-day living of Hashem Echad that we mouth, but that we're very far away from. That we're really not there in the real sense of Hashem Echad. So let's begin. And um, I'll, I'll footnote as we go along, which is always my custom or weakness, whichever one you want to make it. So the intellect says, Cain Vandai, this is definitely true, that, that God is one as creator, sustainer, and the true, uh, a true participant in history. This is definitely the definition of God's oneness in a general way. But this topic of God's oneness and His uniqueness and His singular nature does need much more deeper study. And just in case you're wondering where I got the notion that it does need more study, I will develop the concept in the following way. It says, This is what it says in Dvarim in Deuteronomy, you have now, after 40 years in the desert, finally arrived at the real concept of God being one and there is no other. This is a speech that, uh, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu is referring to in which he is saying that every, all the, the history of the Jew and all of his uh, travels and all of the different things that happen from the beginning of his being a, a nation, all lead up to one thing. Now you've come to that point of recognition of Ein Eid Milvadi, that there is no other aside of him. And our sages come along and say on these words, Ein Eid Milvadi, they come along and they say something rather strange. What do they say? They say, Afilu Ledvar Keshafim, even in regards to black magic. Now, what on earth is that supposed to mean? Right? What is that supposed to mean? Ain't Movada, there is nobody else. Afiluladvar Keshafim. What do we mean by that? So, essentially, what Rav Meshachayim Litzata is speaking about over here, based upon, this isn't a guess on my part, but it is based on other writings of Lazato, what Rav Meshachayim Litzata is speaking about over here is the following. The word for black magic, which by the way, by and large doesn't exist today, but was something which was a real thing in the sense that there were people that knew how to perform things with magic. And I'll explain, I'll explain exactly where it came from in a moment. But essentially what Kishuf was, and the Torah refers to Kishuf, the Chumash refers to Kishuf, that uh, a person that practiced Kishuf, that practiced Magic in the forms of, uh, of in the forms of Kishuf was was uh, dealt a uh, capital punishment. It was considered something that a person wasn't allowed to do. And essentially, what Kishuf was, just for beginners, okay, I'm not a I'm not a professor of Kishuf, but essentially, what Kishuf was was that in the same way that there are positive forces and holy and wholesome forces in the world with which man can create and build, influence, inspire, and touch in areas beyond physical realms, so too there is an equal, not in value, but there is an equal and opposite force 
which is a negative force, which is an impure force, which also exists, which God also created, and it is possible to do many things by being linked to those impure forces. Why God created this is a separate discussion. Why God creates these equal opposite forces is a separate discussion which I don't think I'm going to get into right now. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but I don't think I'm going to get into it. But the concept of Kishif was it was people that were very tuned into the forces which God created, namely the impure forces, and by the, by those being connected to those impure forces and being almost taken over by those forces, they were able to do things. Number one, they would be able to see into the future. Number two, they were able to do certain supernatural things. Bilaam's vision uh, and Bilaam's ability to, to move from place to place quickly in superhuman ways was tied to the impure forces and the Kishif that he knew. Uh, in, the, in the stories and the prophets of how the inhabitants of Jericho protected the city of Jericho from attack, it was by forces of Kishuf that they were able to ward off, or at least they were able to sense people that surrounded the wall, and this was a warning signal to them, and they went out on the offensive whenever somebody came near the wall. So there was something of that nature. Today, most of it, anybody that says that he knows it, most of it is a lot of hocus-pocus. It's, it's not any real stuff. But Kishuf is something that God created, and uh, the ability to be able to perform Kishuf by virtue of these forces is something that God created. And what the comment here is saying is the following thing. The comment over here is saying that God says, Now you are getting the lesson, that God is the ultimate force in this world, and there is no other force. No other force. Relative to Him, there is no other force. And even if we see that a person can perform certain things in the, in the supernatural realms which seem to be an independent force and are totally inconsistent with God control and God ability because with Kishif people were able to do things that seemingly were totally contrary and opposite to what God wanted so a person can make the mistake of saying ah, there's God in the world and then there is a God of Kishif in the world there is another force with which I can operate and be totally free and independent of God so to this the Talmud says no even if we see the performance of Kishuf, which seems to give its practice, the people that practice it, a tremendous amount of ability to function, even in ways seemingly contrary to the very will of God, know that Kishuf is also only able to perform and function by virtue of the fact that God gave it the ability to function. God um, created that option for man that man has the option of electing to get into Kishif. It's not the right thing to do, but he has the option of getting into it. And in order for there to be an equal choice of employing pure forces or impure forces, God gives uh, a certain amount of ability and versatility and function both in pure forces and impure forces. And therefore, know that even though to you it seems that this, seems that this person has some for power all of his own, which would what contradict the concept of Ain Ode, it would contradict the concept that there is no other except God, know that even what you see in front of you is also an expression or a manifestation, at least of God's allowance for the man to elect 
their particular function. This is essentially what the Gemara says. Now, who cares? The Kishuf we don't have today, and I don't think that anybody walked in here or is going to walk out of here uh, confused about some uh, black magic person that they bumped into that confounded their belief confounded their belief in Ein Od Milvade. So who cares and why am I spending so much time on it? But the truth of the matter is that this does have a practical ramification. I, I promised you a lot of implications to everything that we were going to learn. This does have a very specific ramification. And in order to explain it properly, I'd like to tell you a story from the Talmud. Maybe some of you heard it, but I'd like to tell you a story from the Talmud. The Talmud tells us a story of Reb Chanina, a Talmudic sage who was uh, sitting in the study halls of learning and uh, a, a person walked in, a person who was uh, a PhD in Kishuf, walked in and says to Reb Chanina, please get up Reb Chanina, please stand up because I would like to take some earth from under the bench that you are sitting on because with that and with various other things in my potions and my mixtures, I want to harm you. I want to do something against you. Obviously, this Kishif person was being gutsy and was trying to and trying to get you know try to irk Ripchanina and. There's a, there, the earth from different places, especially on the furniture, particularly on the furniture of a study hall, for whatever reason, I'm not going to get into now, this is something that she needed. She was missing something in her ingredients, in her recipe. So she says to Reb Chanina, excuse me, but I need to get something from under the bench. So Reb Chanina says, be my guest, take whatever you would like from under my bench, I am not scared of you. You know, if you would want to picture it, he must probably stuck his tongue out. But I'm not scared of you. I'm not scared of you. Why? So the Gemara says, Ein Eid Because Reb Chanina said, There is no other except God. Those were the words of Reb Chanina. Now, Reb Chaim Valashina, who was a disciple of the Vilna Gain, has a lot of trouble with this piece of Gemara. Because if we know, if we know uh, our um, Talmudic personalities well, we know that Reb Chanina is famed for being a modest person. He's famed within, within Talmudic discussion for being a very modest person. Now, if he is a modest person, it seems somewhat of uh, a measure of arrogance for uh, Reb Chanina, so to speak, to open himself up and say, I'm not scared of you, you can't do anything to me. And after everything is said and done, Reb Chanina also knew that God granted Kishuv the ability to work and the ability to function if a person elects by poor choice to do it. So why was Reb Chanina, you'll excuse the expression, being such a hot shot? and saying, I, I don't have anything to worry about. God created the allowance for Kishuf, and Kishuf can, can do things. So why was Reb Chanina so sure of himself that for him it wasn't an issue? He had nothing to worry about. It wasn't as if he was contending that it doesn't exist. It does exist. And God, and God gave it the ability to function if a person elects that, that route in life. So why was he so cocksure of himself? This is, is Reb Chaim Velazhina's problem. And Reb Chaim says that the answer to this really lies in the words of Reb Chanina. In the words of Reb Chanina, Reb Chanina said, Ein Oid which means the following. And this is a very deep concept. 
Essentially, what Rav Hanina was saying is the following thing. If a person truly believes that there is nothing in this world that can touch him, that can affect him, that can do anything to him, either positively or negatively, unless it was the will of, of God for that to happen to the person. So what it essentially means is that this person recognizes the fact that the player in his life is God. In other words, to, to bow to elements, to worship different elements, to be scared of different elements, is all in a certain measure, is all in a certain measure giving credence to independent, independent interplay and independent uh, interrelationship between the thing and the human being. Now what Reb Hanina was saying is the following thing. Kishuf can harm me. It's possible that Kishuf can harm me. But if it will harm me, it is not because it's divorced from God, but because God for some reason wants that it should it, that it should touch me that it should that it should reach me for some reason. Essentially, what Reb Chanina then is saying is the following thing: If I believe in the kishuf and I stand in awe of the kishuf and I give it independent existence, so to the extent that I give it independent existence and I stand in awe of it and I I reckon with it as as a as a subject in my life, so to that extent I'm not totally connected to God. And I'm not totally relying on God. To that extent, it could have. I can be vulnerable to its effects. But if I know that there is nothing else except God, and there are no other forces that can, can, can do me any harm without God, I am, what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to connect myself to God and know that no matter what happens, everything is coming from you. Essentially, what Reb Hanina is doing over here is he's making an uh, extremely strong bond and connection with God. And to the extent that a person makes a strong bond and connection with God, it's to that extent, in exact proportion, that God then is in total protection of the person. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting concept. We talk about wanting to be protected by God. Right? It's a very interesting relationship that exists between man and God. And I'll give you an example of this in a moment. To the extent that we want God in our lives, and we want, in other words, and we include God, and we don't tell, say to God, keep your nose out of this, this is my business, this is not yours, to that extent that we want Him there, and we, we believe that He's the factor, it's to that extent that Hashem is there. It's to that extent that Hashem is there and to the extent that we want to be on our own and we want to, so to speak, strike it out on our own and we let me be on my own. It's to that extent that God stands back and God says, listen, you want to be on your own, you can be on your own. I will stand back and then you'll, you'll be much more vulnerable to the natural circumstances, to the normal circumstances of everything that goes about you. So it's a relationship. Now, this is not a tit-for-tat kind of a thing. I know it sounds a little bit like tit-for-tat. You want me, I'll be with you. You don't want me, I won't be with you. It's not really tit-for-tat. What it really is, is that as great as God is, ultimately, the way God set up His world is He still needs man's invitation to be there for man. 
because of the Bechira, because of the free will that God gives a man, after everything is said and done, as great as God is, and God can impose himself upon man in terms of protection or anything else, but the system requires a request. Be with me. And to the extent that a person says, be with me, then Hashem is with the person. To the extent that the person is not prepared for it, so God stands back, and that becomes a process of learning. Because the per- to the extent that you rely on outside forces, your security is as great as those forces are. To the extent that those things don't work out for you, you know, so then you come to realize that there's nothing to trust, there's nothing to rely on. And this becomes a learning process. You know, I always thought that my living comes from my boss. And one fine morning he had a heart attack and I was left out in the street. Or, you know, or th- things of that nature. <coughs> so it becomes a, um, a process of that nature. Now let me, let me give you an example of it to make it a little bit more real and then I'll bring it back to what Lozado is saying. The perfect example of this in the Navi, and it, it's an eloquent example it, uh, of, the, of this concept, is in the story of Jericho, in the story of the first of the first entrance of the Jew into Eretz Yisrael after 40 years in the desert. The first city that they came upon was Yericho, Jericho, and it was an impregnable city. There were seven walls around the city of Yericho, seven walls, and the entrances were camouflaged. And as I mentioned before, there were all kinds of different forces and powers and. You know, something from a science fiction book protecting the city of Yerichai. The walls were as, de- as thick as they were high and they were as deep as they were wide. It was, it was a phenomenal fortress. And they had elite soldiers from all of the nations of Canaan in Yerichai. It was, and this was the entrance into Eretz Yisrael. So, what does God ask of the Jew in order to be able to conquer Yerichai? So if you look at the story as it's depicted in the early chapters of Joshua, we see something which is very odd. Sunday morning they are instructed to make a, a circle, in other words, to move in a circle, in a full circular movement around the city, around the walls of Yericho. That's Sunday. Okay? And obviously, when they circled the walls of the city of Yericho, they saw that there wasn't a hole in the wall, and there wasn't a weak spot in the wall. There was virtually nothing in that wall that there was no there was no weakness. But they had to go around the wall on that day. Monday was the same repeat performance. Tuesday was the same. Wednesday was the same. Thursday was the same. Friday was the same. So every day, they knew up to until the day of attack, they knew that the city was impregnable and God is telling them that they're going to conquer the city. Then the day of Shabbos comes and when the day of Shabbos comes, they're instructed to surround the wall of Yerichai seven times and to blow Shafer, to blow the ram's horn and no problem, you'll be able to enter the city of Yerichai. And this they did on the day of Shabbos, which raises the whole issue of why they had to have their war on Shabbos which is, which is a major issue it's a, it's a, it's a, and blowing the shaper on Shabbos yeah, blowing the shaper is not such a complicated problem as going to war on Shabbos but they went to war on Shabbos, they blew the, the shaper they went around it, it seven times and then the Navi tells us that the walls of Yerichai sunk into the ground catching the enemy totally off guard you know, literally, you'll excuse the expression, with their pants down, you know. The thing that they were relying on just sinks right into the ground. They went into the city, 
All right, they went into the city and conquered the city. This is the story. Now, Revelio Dessler asks a question, which the question is the answer, essentially. He says, could you imagine these troops? They must have been scared out of their wits. In other words, if they wouldn't have had a, a circle around the city every single day, every single day, so then they might have thought to themselves that, ah, we don't know, but there's something wrong in the foundation of the, of the walls of Yericha. There must be something wrong there. But by going around the walls of Yericha every single day, they knew that they were dealing with the impossible, the total impossible. So this should have created a tremendous sense of fear and trepidation and a sense of futility in, in, in entering Yericha. But Rebbe Yodessa says, yes, that's one option. The other option, though, is that it was a poignant lesson that what God was telling them is that when you're entering the land and you're entering with forces and with troops and with military and with might and everything else, I want to teach you from the very outset of your entering Eretz Yisrael that it's not your power and it's not your force, it's because I want that you should have Eretz Yisrael. And they could not have said to themselves or patted themselves on the back, we did it, we made it happen, we had a ballistic missile that was strong enough to penetrate. They knew clearly that if, this is not, this is not our doing if we get in here, this is a matana, this is a gift that Hashem is giving us, which establishes a very sharp uh, lesson at the very beginning that man is not succeeding by his power and by his by his uh, versatility and his military prowess, but he's succeeding because Hashem wants him to succeed. So, in that vein, Revelio Odessa says, it was productive. To always know that there was nothing to rely on except Hashem, that created a tremendous bond with nothing except Hashem. And after six days of circling Yerichai and, and, and building up a deeper and deeper bond, it must be you. And we, we only can rely on you. And we must trust you. And we have to come closer to you when that bond was, was you know, in other words, when it was building up in its, in its intensity, then God asked the Jew to do something very interesting on the day of Shabbos. God asked the Jew on the day of Shabbos not only to circle the city seven times and blow Shafer, but to dance around the city of Yerichai, a dance of victory and celebration. Now, again, one thing is that these people are stark raving mad. You're not in there yet. You don't know how you're going to get in there. And nevertheless, the Tzili Hashem was that when the seventh day comes, when the day of Shabbos comes, I want you to celebrate a victory celebration with all the walls standing there. And this they did, and they blew the shape, and they were tremendously happy that they had conquered Yerichai, and with that, Yerichai was conquered. And that gives you an example, and that really answers the question, why Shabbos? Because essentially, the day of Shabbos is the day of trust in Hashem. All the days of the week, we're into ourselves, we're into being creative, we're into doing things, we're, ma- we're into making things happen. That's the way it's put in California, at least. <laughs> I'm going to make it happen. When Shabbos comes, you're not making anything happen. Right? And the only way that it comes about, the only way that it comes about is because, and leaving the office with everything piled up on the desk and 15 million important things to do, 
And it could wait. What do you mean it could wait? It can't wait. The, uh, the world is going to collapse. But one's trust in Hashem that the, the one that provided for me this week will provide for me next week and none of the papers will run away. They'll be there for me Monday morning. In other words, total trust in Hashem Total trust in Hashem is the whole atmosphere of what the Shabbos is about. So God purposely picked Shabbos because they needed the holiness of Shabbos, the atmosphere of Shabbos, to, in order to be in contact with that trust in Hashem, in all of the ways of the trust in Hashem. So what happened? On this side of the fence, because they didn't fear the wall, but they trusted Hashem, the wall didn't exist for them. For the people on the other side of the wall, that totally trusted the wall. Okay, so your wall is your strength. And without the wall, you're left with nothing. So it worked exactly. In other words, everybody had what they, what they were attached to. The Jew that was attached to God had God. The, the people that were attached to the wall had the wall. And the walls can go away. God doesn't go away. And that's essentially, in other words, from both sides of the fence, if you want to use that expression, you have this example. That which a person trusts in and relies on, that, that's what becomes the person's life. That's what becomes the person's strength. So if my, my trust is Hashem, so Hashem becomes my strength. If my trust is the wall, my strength is the strength of the wall. Something happens to the wall. That's the end of my strength. But that's a marshal. That's an example of this. So now going back to Reb Chanina, going back to Reb Chanina, this is what Reb Chanina is saying. Reb Chanina says, I could steer Kishuf in the face. I can steer black magic in the face. And I'm totally unimpressed. Because I know that and no matter how independent and how powerful and how magnificent it seems to be, totally out of the realms of Hashem, I know that it absolutely doesn't have any existence without Hashem. So if it functions, it's only functioning by the right that Hashem gives it to function. So why should I give it any credence? Why should I give it any respect? What I am going to do is I'm going to be connect, totally trusting in Hashem. Totally connected to Hashem and, and totally bound up with thoughts of the power of Hashem, that Hashem is the only force that, that is responsible for what happens to me. Ultimately, the only force. God can work through different forces, but God is the one that is in, in control. It's that sense of connection to Hashem that Reb Hanina was confident would, would protect him. Being so connected in the face of such a blazing threat of being hurt by Kishuf meant a tremendous connection to Hashem. You have to be terribly connected. If the threat is not so big, so you don't have to be so connected, you don't have to trust so hard. But if the, to the extent that the threat is greater, you have to be able to develop a connection and a trust that there, it can't harm me as, as hard as it looks into, to me. So it makes a deep connection to Hashem. There is nothing else except Hashem. When a person really believes that there is nothing else except Hashem, then there is nothing else except Hashem in that person's life. And nothing else can come into that person's life that, that's going to do anything to the person that's, that's inconsistent with, with what the, what's going on in that person's life. Now, I'm going to give another example of the concept, because, but I'd like to recount a story, a, re, a story of the same idea. There's a story told that the Briskarov, a great Torah sage, and his son were traveling uh, on a dangerous mission on a, tr on a train 
through um, Nazi-occupied territory during World War II. And they were chancing it because were they to be stopped, they didn't have the right papers, they didn't have the right, they didn't have the right materials in order to be able to get through. And they were very nervous. They were very nervous. And what the Briskarov told his son was that when the, when the, um, when the officers, whatever you want to call them, come into the cabin that we're sitting in, make sure that your mind is totally focused on Ein Eid Milvadai, that there is no other except Hashem. Make sure to be in deep concentration over that concept of Ein Eid Milvadai, that there is no other force that governs this world ultimately other than Hashem. That was the advice that the Briskarov gave his son. And as the officer went through the cabin, as the officer went through the cabin, the officer began questioning the son, not the father, the son, and then, all in the middle of questioning, just walked away. After the officer left the cabin, the Briskarov asked his son what happened. So the Briskarov's son said to his father, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He said, you most probably had the ability and the concentration to be able to think Ein Eid Movadeh. But for a split second, when I saw that officer, I got scared. And in the moment of being scared, I for a moment forgot Ein Eid Movadeh. In the moment that I forgot Ein Eid Movadeh, he began asking me questions. And then I remembered what you told me, and I was bent on rethinking of Ein Eid Movadeh, and I don't know what happened, but he left me. <coughs> This is the story that's told over it. It's a story that's told over it. It's, it's, it's printed. It's, public, it's a published story. And this is this concept of Ein Od Novade of Reb Chanina with the Kshafen. Now, that, you know, if you think about that for a moment, if you think about that for a moment, that has a tremendous, that has tremendous application in, in many areas of life. Now, we might not be ready for you know, walking in the face of tremendous danger, ain't Eid Movadeh. You know, uh, you know, most of us most probably are not there. All of us are not there, most probably. Um, but nevertheless, on a lower level, there is a concept. There is a very deep concept in ain't Eid Movadeh that we can relate to. We go through life. Let me give you one example. We go through life uh, spending pretty much energy being worried about a lot of different things in life. We expend a lot of energy. There's only so much energy that we have, but we do expend uh, an allotment of energy in worrying and being concerned and sometimes even acting and um, dismissing certain priorities or compromising priorities because of a measure of worrying or a measure of wanting to guarantee things to work out exactly the way you want them to work out. We do live with certain measures of that. And to the extent that we compromise certain priorities because of worrying and because we want to guarantee things, to a certain extent, we lose control. We've lost control of certain things. Certain things are important to us. I'm just saying it in very general ways. For different people, it's different. But we, but we, we have to be secure. We have to be guaranteed. We worry if we're not. And in order to soothe our worrying, we go out of our way to remove the, any shadow of a doubt or any sense of insecurity. 
And it could be sometimes at an expense of something else that's important to do or an expense of time or energy or resources or whatever else it is. And to that extent, to that extent we can relate to Ein Od Milvado. What, what we would say with Ein Od Milvado would be the following thing. What I'm going to have or what I'm not going to have is, is all what God decided for me. Now that's a very advanced concept. But that I can't have more than God decided for me, and I won't have less than God decided for me, just as long as I'm responsible about it. That's a very, very advanced concept, but it is part of the concept of Enod Milvada. A person that says, well, God decided for me 20 grand this year, right? and I'm deciding for myself a raise, another 10. So God can give me the 20, and then I'm going to go ahead and add another 10. Right? I'm going to add another 10. Okay? Now, that's not Enod Milvado. Because Enod Milvado says that, the, that God is the one. There is no other. God is the one that decides. Now, this raises a lot of problems, and I'll take questions on this. Okay, so why can't I just sit home and wait for the 20 to come? You know, if it's meant to be, it'll be. And if it's not, it won't happen even if I try harder. So, so I'll sit home and let it wait for it to, just to walk in my door. Obviously, there are questions that have to be sorted out with this. But the idea that you're not alone and that you don't have to make it happen by yourself, but that there's a God there that's involved with you, that's worrying for you, and that's, that's granting you what in his mind is the best for you, not necessarily comfortable for you, but best for you at that point in time, is also, it's an offshoot of the concept that ain't od movado. You think it's, it's a God and you. Ain't od movado says no. God is deciding what's, what's appropriate and what's best for you at this particular point in time, and that your intervention in saying, okay, God made his decision, but I know better, or I know differently, or I want to modify it, and so on and so forth, is, 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 is going away in a certain sense from that. Uh, let's, say, let's give another example. Uh, the, the test of not working on Shabbos is an example, which is a tremendous test. For people that are accustomed to getting out there and making it happen, and as you make it happen, the money comes in. And when you don't go out there and you stay home, you don't make the money. You know, and then you go tell a person, well, your livelihood comes from God. You know, it, it's hard because in the world that we live, that we see, that we perform, that we see the causes and effects, and that we see the responses, telling a person that it all comes from God and it doesn't come from you, is something that's almost contrary to the reality that's in front of the person. But <clears throat> going along with the same line of Ein Od Milvado, which means that the only, th- only force that controls, the only thing that's going to be controlling what I have and what I don't have is God. So then we would logically examine, okay, if God's in the driver's seat in terms of how much I'm going to make, I have to go out there and create the natural channels for it. But God is in control of it, so then it's totally inconsistent to know that God's in control of how much I'm making, and then, and then the same God that is in control of how much I'm making uh, is the same God that told me, but don't make it happen on Shabbos. So then the person says, no, 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 no. I, I believe that God's giving it to me, but I have to work on Shabbos in order to get it. 
But the same God that's giving it to you is the same God that told you don't make it happen on Shabbos. Make it happen the rest of the week, but don't make it happen on Shabbos. So how does a person resolve this? How does a person answer this? Again, God is not the one that's making it happen. I'm making it happen. See, if God's making it happen, and I know that the same God that's making it happen is the same God that's telling me, but don't do it on Shabbos, so then it's a contradiction. If I really, really believe that it comes from God, and it's not from me, so then that same God that's giving it to me is the same God that's telling me, but don't make it happen on Shabbos. So the person that moves ahead and, and, and does make it happen, so to speak, on Shabbos, Right? That, that person is obviously, maybe intellectually he would like to believe that God's making it happen, but on an emotional level, on an operative level, on a day-to-day level, he really doesn't believe it. He believes that he's making it happen. Or maybe he doesn't believe that Hashem told him to keep Shabbos. I mean, there are other possibilities as well. It's not, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. But that would be another example. So we might not be ready for Reb Chanina's Eina or the Briska Rav's Eina but there is the concept of God's uniqueness and being totally in control is something that does. It does touch us. It does touch us in certain ways. Which is, uh, there are a lot of questions with, with, with this, especially when it comes to Parnassa making a livelihood, which I'll gladly take in a, in a short while. Let me just give you one more example of the concept. We'll finish the paragraph, and then maybe I'll take questions on this, because this is a little bit difficult to swallow. And for me too. It's it's not it's 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 a it's a level, you know, and uh, it's something that uh, that even as much as we can logically try to prove it and intellectually understand it, unless we try to live it and test it, we re- it doesn't become incorporated into into testing in the sense. I'll give you an example of what I mean by testing. A person says, "I believe that God gives me my parnasa." Right? and then goes out there and does things which God tells him not to do in terms of making a living. Let's say being dishonest, being cheatful, being, telling lies about it. Right? Because the offer was too tempting. Right? Now, if a person stands back and says, I can make ten grand, but I have to be a little bit, you know, not so straight. <clears throat> but I can make ten grand easy. And the person stands back and says, I believe that was meant for me, I'm going to get, and it doesn't make sense that I should have to get it illegally. If it was meant for me, and this is what God wants me to have, God certainly created a legitimate channel for it. And therefore, as tempting as this is, I am not going to lower myself to an illegitimate channel. God must have provided legitimate channels for it. Uh, If a person stands back and says that, and lets the offer slide by... The fact that the person made a decision based upon that belief and that trust is what is going to deepen in the realness, the emotional and the operative realness of that trust. That's what's going to make the difference. If a person just always talks about it intellectually, but in in what he does is not that, so then he's a contradiction. And, and after everything is said and done, internalizing beliefs means that you have to live by them and even if they cost something, and even if you have to sweat at them, and if you cost and you sweat at them, they cost you and you sweat at them, then they become deeper. Then they become more internalized. Nobody can, can uh, pride themselves that they really trust God unless the trust was put on the line. 
In other words, unless they were decisions that were made, real decisions were made in the person's life that were decisions that were based on the trust. The Chazonish says it in almost a, 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 a cynical way. He says, what's the difference between believing in God and trusting God? Emunah in Hashem and Bitachan in Hashem. He said, Emunah is where you believe it for everybody else. Bitachan is when you believe it for yourself and you apply it to daily life. And, and in its application, it gets that depth. Let me just give you another example which goes back further. Okay, we have Rip Chanina, which is a Talmudic example with with the Kishif person. We have the Briskarov, which is a relatively contemporary example. Does it go back any further? This concept of Ein Muvad? It does. It goes back to a, a whole story in the Chumash. One very particular story in the Chumash. Jacob is fighting in the portion of Ayishlach in Breishis. He's fighting with some kind of a spiritual force, physical and spiritual in nature, in the portion of Ayishlach. He's combating a force that is trying to conquer him both physically and ideologically, in both ways. In any case, if one looks at the verses clearly, it says there, at the beginning of the battle that Jacob had, which, by the way, in the end, he won the battle, he was not conquered, it says, V'Hashem of Olav, God was standing by his side, near him, beside him. V'Hashem of Olav. In any case, as the battle goes on, we know that the, 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 the force that was fighting with him saw that he was not able to conquer Jacob. So he made an attempt at hitting at his thigh. And he hit him in his thigh. He did not, he did not get him down, so to speak. He didn't pin him. He didn't, you know, or anything like that. But he hit him in his thigh. That weakened Jacob. And he was temporarily, he limped because of it. But eventually he was cured from that from that wound, but it, the but the, the the battle as a whole, he did not, you know, he did not lose. Now, the, again, the commentaries say, the commentaries say, what happened? What happened? Jacob was successful enough, successful enough that this force wasn't able to conquer him. But why couldn't it be perfect? Why couldn't Jacob have walked away? The words that are key are Hashem Nitzavalov. God was standing beside him. So for as long as God was standing beside Jacob, now beside Jacob doesn't mean that God, you know, took an elevator down to this world and was standing next to Jacob. It meant that in Jacob's consciousness, Jacob was thinking of one thing, Ein Od Nuvade. He was thinking about the fact that there is nothing that can can overcome me right, unless it's Hashem's will. And he was totally connected to Hashem. Now, what did the angel do? What this angel that was fighting with Jacob did, and this the Talmud talks about, he showed him, he showed Jacob a prophetic vision of how his children would go away from faith. Not all of his children, but some of his children would go away from the faith in the time of the Greek Assyrian period. He gave Jacob a photo flash of a historical period that was extremely distressing to Jacob. The Jews that shmad themselves, the Jews that went away from their faith in the times of, you know, that were just preceding the Hanukkah story in that period of time, the Hellenistic period. And for a moment, 
the Sepharonist says, who is a commentary on the Chumash, the pain of those historical events caused Jacob for a moment to depart from the Ein Od Milvado, to let go of that, that, that bond with Hashem. And at the moment that he let go of that bond with Hashem, the Malach was able to, to it, in, at least inflict a wound upon Jacob that was healable, but at least to be able to inflict that wound. All right, so these would be some of the examples. So we have a biblical example, a Talmudic example, and a more contemporary example of, of, of that concept. Um, those of you that are more well-read up on, on uh, different uh, forms of healing know that the mind of man and the connection that a person has to, to certain elements of strength can be forms of even curing diseases. I mean, there have been books that have been written about this as well. And essentially, it's, 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 it's along the same lines conceptually as this. The ability of the strength and the connection that a person has and the determination that the person has, and when that is, is channeled uh, towards Hashem, this can, can provide the, the most phenomenal forms of protection for a person. This is some of what this Ein Od Movado is. All right, let's finish up the paragraph and then I'll take questions. I'm sure that I've irked some questions here. All right, let's, let's just finish up the paragraph. V'hainu. What does this mean? Behold, when we say, when we say that God is one, it's not sufficient just to believe that God is one in terms of his existence. What do I mean that he's one in his existence? That he's the only absolute existence. And that there is no other creator except him. That is not sufficient definition for when we say that God is one that he's an absolute existence and he's the only creator. That's not sufficient. But what do we have to say? But what, we, what is necessary for us, not to say, but to understand, that there is no other ruler or a conductor to history except him. That's already, that gets very intimate. That gets into a person's bones. In other words, to say that God is a creator is simple. What do I have to do with creation? I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I created the world. And to say that uh, God sustains the world in terms of its, its physical forms of creation, fine, I'm not so arrogant to believe that I'm sustaining the world. What am I doing to sustain the physical world and the natural orders? But when it gets down to Shein Shum Shalatu Meishel, that there is nobody else that's ruling, that there is no other force that's ruling in the world, no, that already rubs shoulders already. That already rubs, you know, a lot of personality things of who we are in terms of, of making things happen, our ego, and, and all of the rest of it. And the direction of history, not only the events of history, but the direction of history. Manig means the order, the direction that history takes is, is fully in God's control. And that there's nobody that can stand in God's way. If God wants to get something done, it gets done. And there's nothing that will hinder His will. 
V'zeu she'shlitasa yechidus agmura, that God's sovereignty is is singular and total. Right? This is this is a new concept, and this has a lot of implications for how we live our lives. V'hu ha'inyan mashin is bayer bekasuf. And this is what is meant when it says in the verse, Ru I want you now to see, which means to understand. Ki anihu, it's me. Don't think it's anybody else, it's me. Which is, Ani amis I take away life, I bring life. And after everything's said and done, if something's meant to be, you can't run away. And so it says, and Eub saw this, in his life, Job saw this in the circumstances of his life. God lives in oneness, in uniqueness, in total, in total and complete sovereignty. And who can talk back? And who can who can change what 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 God deems? And we also say this before God. We can tell God what to do. God is the one that is in control. The Teidi, and I want you to know, this is a tremendous concept, a very big principle. This is not just something that's nice, you know, a cherry on top in terms of Jewish attitudes. This is a Yisaid Gadol. This is a, this is a firm, firm belief in, 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 in Yiddishkeit. And we will elaborate on this even 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 more so than this, this 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 idea of the the singular nature of Hashem. Now, I'd like to just uh, extend one more one more feeling, one more implication to this concept, and then I would like to invite questions because I don't know uh, I don't know where we're all at right now at this point because this is a very big insight, a very big principle. If we can if we can reconcile ourselves to this to this concept we we paradoxically almost para- it seems to be a paradox we can gain a tremendous amount in terms of how well we cope with things that happen in our lives let me give you one example see everything that i said up to this point might have might have made it sound like we, we've just relinquished being anything. We've just given up everything. Uh, true, it's Tahashem, but still, you know, it's, uh, you know, let's be honest with ourselves. It sounds like we've just walked away from, from everything that we build ourselves up to be. And it seems to be a very stressful uh, uh, thing to have to live through psychologically, emotionally. Let me point out one thing. Let me point out one thing, maybe two, maybe two things, and then I'll open up the questions. I want to show you that I want to at least share with you, illustrate to you how productive this can be, and that in essence, what seems to be uh, a tremendous sacrifice and letting go and giving away is really not. Let me give you two examples. Let's start with with something that sooner or later we always we all confront. Uh, failures or what we believe are failures, disappointments or what we believe are disappointments. We wanted something, we wanted something to happen, we had something and we lost it. Things of that nature. Things of that nature. Now, a person usually 
will go through a very intense process to at least convince themselves that it wasn't their fault that they failed and it wasn't their fault that something happened that was a disappointment. Right? Why? Because as, as hard as the failure is and as hard as the disappointment is, right, it's worse if I know that I did it to myself. Right? It's ten times worse. Then I'm ready to kick myself for it. So then I can, altogether can't live with myself. So we will even sometimes build false rationales for ourselves that it was somebody else's fault and it was, you know, it, it, we do all kinds of different things. But after everything is said and done, failure or disappointment of what we've maintained to be what would be successful for us is something which is very, very difficult to come to peace with. It's hard. It's very hard to come to peace with. And very often the most that we do, or what, uh, some, of, some of what uh, um, you would get maybe from a psychologist or in therapy is you, you have to let go of the past and look into the future and it's not terrible, but you have to move on. Right? And this is a technique, but that's not the whole answer for a Yid. For a Jew, there is a, there is a much deeper answer. And the answer is that if it ultimately happened, it happened for a reason, Hashem was involved in what happened and uh, that if it wasn't the best thing for you at that point in time to happen, Hashem wouldn't have allowed it to happen. Now that dimension, that, what, that you're sharing the thing with Hashem, that Hashem is, uh, that God's knowledgeable of what's going on and that God would have stood in the way because He can stand in the way. Nothing holds Him back from standing in the way if it wouldn't be in the long run, in the short or long run, the best thing for you. If a person has that, that, that sense, so then a person can stand back from the holiest of causes, from the deepest determinations, and stand back and say, it wasn't meant to be. Hashem didn't want, I don't know why Hashem didn't want it. But Hashem knows more than me, understands more than me, has my interests in mind, and felt that at this point in time, this is what wasn't the thing that was meant for me. Now, if a person can even touch some of that, that gives a, tr- a person a tremendous ability uh, of, of, of reconciling oneself and moving forward from that point instead of becoming immobilized and incapacitated and depressed and so on and so forth. Now, mind you, I'm saying this and explaining it and it's, it's not an easy thing to deal with. It's, you know, when, because uh, the, the psychology of man, the emotions of man are not necessarily so well developed to, to do this but even if we're not there but if we could at least remind ourselves that, that not to so to speak let everything fall apart because after everything is said and done even if I'm not, I don't really I'm not there completely emotionally but I must remind myself that the Hashem knows what's going on and if this wouldn't be good for me in the, in the long, at least in the long run it wouldn't have happened to me I have to see how in ways how I can make things better for myself. It doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to look to make things better for myself, but it's a way of coping. It's a way of dealing. That's one. Let's give, now that we dealt with failure or, and disappointment or what we believe is failure and disappointment, let's, let's deal with the other side, success. Success is also a very big challenge. You know, being successful creates many nisyanos. It creates many challenges. A person is extremely successful at something. So if the person knows 
if the person knows that his success is a blessing and, and God gave him the merit and God gave him the opportunity to be successful in this way so then God is incorporated in his richness in his, in his, in his feeling of success and then his, his success and his richness or whatever he might have come upon will not be used in a haughty way in an arrogant way in a destructive way against other people because it's coming because he's taking it together who gave it to me what was it given to me for shouldn't I uh, shouldn't I feel privileged that I was blessed in such a way and shouldn't I return the kindness and be thankful so there's there's a, there's an inclusion of, of Hashem in the success and the inclusion of Hashem in success means that I will use the, 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 how I will celebrate it how I will use it how I will share it I won't become a different person you know all the people that when they were when they needed other people knew other people and were sensitive and then they got rich and they forgot everybody else and then they forgot that one day they were also in that place a person that knows that it's a matana that, it's, that Hashem granted the person the ability to make that is moving ahead with, with, with God and when the person moves ahead with God, that gives the person the ability to always have a, a sense of perspective, a qualitative sense of perspective that will protect the person from falling prey to some of the ills of being successful, some of the nisyanos of being successful. I, I certainly said enough for one, for one evening. I'll, I'll start taking questions. Uh, I just want to ask you, I guess, um, uh, you know that the last couple of days this uh, show has been on television and it's been pretty shocking actually. And I want to know how the concept of Eno Novato might relate to the Holocaust and, and, and what happened or what didn't happen um, in terms of um, the tragedy that, that did occur. Was there a lack of, of faith um, in God either collectively or individually or was there something lacking in, in the Jewish people as a whole in, in, in terms of, of the Holocaust? Yeah, I want to know about the same thing. There are very righteous individuals who trusted completely who were caught up in that. All right, that's the second, second part of the, of the question. Uh, the Holocaust is definitely a, a, a very, very difficult, um, a, a very difficult issue to deal with. Um, certainly, I will, I, I can't in 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 any f- form of a short answer be able to answer the question fully. But um, and the truth of the matter is that there is there are no complete and full answers. There are there are some answers that should be considered as as some of the reasons or some of the possibilities for for the Holocaust, um, and some of them answer your question but don't answer the question that you just asked, uh, which goes into other areas of understanding understanding how things like that happened. One of the things that we have to think about, okay, and. And again, it's not it's not an answer for every single person that suffered in the Holocaust. But one of the things that's very important to think about is that if you if if you know the history of the time, the there was a period of Haskalah, 
a period which in, in English is translated as quote-unquote enlightenment, or it's, at least that's what Mendelssohn called it, uh, enlightenment, in, in which um, the, the trend, certainly in Germany where, where all of the trouble started, which is always a good indication that's where you that's the place where you should study first because if the punishment started there and if the suffering started there certainly most probably some of the ills started in the same place because God usually addresses an issue you know at home plate what was Haskalah? what was enlightenment what was Mendelssohn all about what what was going on in Germany for a hundred a hundred and fifty years before before the, the Holocaust took place. Essentially, what Enlightenment was all about, okay, the long and short of what Enlightenment was about, was a whole bunch of things that made major statements, a whole bunch of concepts that made major statements about what Judaism was and what Judaism wasn't. Uh, essentially, to be uh, a wholesome person, a full-rounded person, um, Judaism was not sufficient. Judaism was in fact out of date. Judaism was for the dark ages. Um, and that a person was supposed to be a citizen of his country first, cultured, totally educated in all of those ways, and that success and fulfillment lay in those things, and that uh, much of Judaism was relics or ancient, ancient things. Now, that's philosophically, but uh, in a practical way, what that did was it began a tremendous trend of assimilation in which uh, the Jew wasn't comfortable with showing his... Is it assimilation? I, I got to Hitler four and a half years. So, you know, and the Germans suffered the Vedics because they, they let them out. You know, they go on, they could take everything and we suffered, you know, to go on the Rabonim and everything, you know, for my killer. No, I'll come to that question in a minute. That was the question that she asked in terms of the ones that didn't assimilate. But, but the 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 point being that the 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 point the point being that because um, there was the value of what Judaism was and the the pride in being a Jew and all of that definitely <laughs> suffered under the philosophy of enlightenment. Uh, under the philosophy of enlightenment so essentially the Jew and I'm not saying it every single Jew I'm just saying that this was this made tremendous inroads into 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 Jewish lifestyle into Jewish thinking it made it made major inroads what what do we then have we have uh, we have two phenomena we have the phenomena that the Jew is not appreciating who he is that's phenomena number one. And because of it and not appreciating it, walking away from it more and more in terms of processes of assimilation. One of the ways in which God always deals with a lack of appreciation for valuable things, one of the techniques that God uses, it's not the first technique that God uses, it's the last technique that God uses, but one of those techniques that God uses is if you don't appreciate it, I'll take it away from you. This is a classical Hanhaga, which is not necessarily easy to swallow, but this is a conduct of God, 
This was the conduct of God when it came to the land of Israel. This was the conduct of God when it came to the temple. And this is no surprise. It's not as if, God, oh God, you didn't warn us of uh, that this is your conduct. I mean, this is clearly stated in the Chumash in two places where God says, this is my conduct. The land is precious. The, the Beis HaMikdash is precious. The Jewish people are precious. But that, that preciousness must be retained by the Jew. And if the Jew doesn't uh, retain that preciousness, God takes it away. Now, God taking away the preciousness is not taking it away permanently. But God is taking away the preciousness because we know in human nature that when something is taken away, that's when we want it back. That's when we learn what it's all about. That's when we very often we become to appreciate things after they're not here anymore. And this is a form. This is a, certainly when we're talking about the temple the destruction of the temple, mourning the destruction of the temple. What is it? In other words, we try to understand what we're missing, and by understanding what we're missing and wanting to have that which we're missing back, that becomes the way that we will get it back. So in other words, we take things for granted, and uh, we don't appreciate them for what they are, and very often the technique by which we can internalize those gifts is when they're pulled back from us, and then we come to compare what we are and what we were and that makes, you know, it's very similar to a comment that was once made. I never said this, but a comment that was once made, if the Jew wanted to forget that he was a Jew, the world didn't let him forget. It's a comment that was made, and it was a very stark comment, especially in terms of Germany, where Jews tried to cover up, you know, their ancestry. And the Germans dug back one generation, two generations, three generations. They went far back. And if you were quarter Jewish, as it's called, which is ridiculous, there's no such thing as quarter Jewish. But, but, but what was the point of that? The point of that was that you're trying to run away from it. You can't run away from it. Now, th- this is, this is one aspect. It's not the whole story, but this is definitely one aspect. And, and, um, the uh, the Meshachachma, uh, who's the famed for his Sefer Meshachachma, he's famed for his Sefer Arsameach, upon which the yeshiva is named, has a very beautiful essay, which might be worthwhile for us to learn once. I've done it before in Hebrew, and then it's been translated into English as well. He has a very beautiful essay, how he maps that all of history, all of Jewish history, over the last 2,000 years, was where the Jew came into a country, was left alone, became successful, slowly, slowly lost his appreciation due to his success and so on and so forth, lost his appreciation, wanted to begin to assimilate, wanted to forget that he was Jew first, and successful this, that, or the other thing second. And at the exact moment that things were getting too comfy, it was at that point that the nation stood up against the host nation stood up against the Jew. And the way the Meshachachma says it is that to us it looks terribly cruel. It looks terribly, it looks horrible. Right? But in essence, it's, it, in, in that curse, there's a hidden blessing. Because it was, it was the, it was all of those things that happened when things got as comfortable as they did and when things were going to the extent that they were going, it was those things that kept us who we were. You know, Jews think that we, we survived in spite of what was done to us. And to a certain extent, that's true. 
but we not only survived in spite of what was done to us but we survived because of what was done to us right? and that's something that's worthwhile to think about we say it in the Haggadah this is what stood uh, our forefathers in good stead that in every generation they stood up against us and they wanted to destroy us. That's a verse that we say. We raise the cup and we sing it, Vihishamda. So the literal translation of that is, Vihishamda was God's promise for our survival that's always kept us, no matter what people wanted to do to us. But one of the commentaries says a very insightful definition, Vihishamda. This itself is what kept us who we are. That in every generation we were reminded who we were. When we didn't want to know anymore who we were, we re- we were reminded who we were. Now, obviously, this opens up the question. Right? This opens up the question. Okay, that's good for the ones that were trendy in that way. Those were the ones for that was. Maybe that's some kind of a justification for the ones that did. But how about for the ones that didn't assimilate, and uh, and the thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of great people that passed away. Uh, this is a big. This is a big question, and there are many there, there are many possibilities in terms of answering that question, uh, which is is a little bit hard to go into right now. But I'm just pointing out that to look at the Holocaust and to assume that everything was in tip-top shape. I'm not saying it's an answer for every single situation, but on the other hand, to assume that it was all in tip-top shape. And that there's nishkin farves and farven, that there's no rhyme or reason at all for the whole thing, is a, mes- is a misrepresentation of history. And uh, and the Chumash tells us it. The Chumash, you know, I think I once mentioned it, if if not here in a lecture, that there are two portions in the Torah at the end of Leviticus and at the end of Deuteronomy that deal with horrendous descriptions of punishment and if you go into a synagogue we read a portion every week and you know you get to those portions so there's a custom that it's read quickly and quietly there is such a custom that it's read quickly and quietly maybe because it's a bad sign and this and that it's read quickly and quietly I heard from um, from one of my teachers Rav Hutner Zechern Levracha that he said once that if it would be in his power he would have eliminated that custom. Why? He would have eliminated that custom because it's a misinterpreted custom. Because people come to interpret it that God's punishment and God's warnings are bad things, unproductive things, uh, counterproductive things, and that they should be avoided at all costs, and that we, are, we should turn away and not face that aspect of, of the relationship with God. And what Rafutna said is that that's not realistic. We have to grow from the love of God and also from knowing that when we veer away that there's going to be a God that's going to be determined to put us back on on the path, so to speak. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> okay. That's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. Let me explain the question. There is an attitude. Well, uh, in, in, instead of just paraphrasing the question, I'll, I'll, I'll paint a picture. I'll paint a picture. A person decides 
In California, it's freeways. Over here, it's expressways or whatever you want. A person says, I'm going to be like Reb Hanina. I really believe like Reb Hanina. Ain't Milvado. And I'm going to walk across the BQE at 5 o'clock. You follow the question? In other words, a person has a responsibility not to put themselves into the place of Sakana, into the place of danger. Right? Not a, he's, not, he's not allowed to put himself in the place of danger. And if so... In spite of the fact that Reb Chanina was hooked into Einod Milvado and everything, how did he put himself into danger? I, I've thought a lot about that because it's it's uh, it's you know it's an obvious question here. There are two possibilities, and they're most and they're most probably both both parts in the in what's going on over here. Number one, number one, the Gemara. To be perfectly honest, the Talmud also says another thing. The Talmud also says Nafish Shusay. Which is not a whole answer, but what Nafish Shusei means is that Reb Chanina uh, was of a level, of a spiritual level, that deserved supernatural protection. In other words, for, for most people, or for a majority of people, or for 99% of people, there is the law that you are not allowed to put yourself into a place of danger. Period. You're not allowed to. Okay, there are people that endangered themselves right, because of certain reasons that they felt that they had to endanger themselves and the reason why they came out of it alive and not dead like the person that will walk across the BQE is because of nafish schusen because they had great schusen now, but that is not in itself enough of an answer the other part to it which complements it is the following this was not only a question of walking across the BQE. This was a question of making a point. It was a, it was a, it was a philosophical showdown. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that this person, this Kishif person could have played her, the Kishif on anybody. Okay? Why did this Kishif person want to play this on Reb Hanina? It was only because Reb Hanina symbolized a God figure. Reb Hanina was a God figure, and he symbolized God power. He, re- he symbolized everything that God was. When this person that wanted to try out the Kishif, he could have tried, could have gotten any customer to try the Kishif, and he could have bumped off anybody. Why did why why the selection of Reb Hanina? The selection of Reb Hanina was because he's represented a God figure, and this Kishif person wanted to make a statement that I can fight God. You're a symbolism of God. You're a God figure. Being that that is so, Reb Hanina felt that if he had it within his ability of linking up with Ein Od Milvado, if he had it within his ability to link up with Ein Od Milvado and to be totally connected to God, he could ask God for supernatural protection because of the of the showdown element that was involved here. And we have this count, countless times in our history. Elio asks for a supernatural miracle. Um, Moses asks for a supernatural miracle in the demise of Korach. We have situations of that nature. We don't rely on miracles. Why, why aren't we allowed to put ourselves into danger? Because we're not allowed to rely on a miracle. But people did ask for miracles. So in this particular case of Reb Hanina, Reb Hanina most probably understood it's a showdown. There's a concept that, that has to be brought across over here. 
if Reb Hanina wouldn't have had it within himself to make that link with God, he was the wrong person to ask for the showdown, to, to, to ask God for the success in the showdown. So it's a combination. Reb Hanina had the ability to make that connection to God. He felt that there was a showdown, a philosophical showdown that was being that that was being presented over here. He felt that he had the schusim to be able to come through it. So all of those components together make that particular situation a unique one. But the question's an excellent question. Don't walk across the BQE <laughs> thinking ain't Od Movado. It won't work. <laughs> Did you read this? There was an ongoing dialogue between Rabbi Lamb and Rabbi, this, uh, a Rabbi Lamb. I, don't, I think one from one of you, Rabbi, uh, a Rabbi Maurice Lamb. And who? And uh, Rabbi Turk. I don't know, Rabbi Turk. One took the position that the Holocaust, but uh, I think Rabbi Lamb was took the position that the Holocaust had nothing to do with sin, that you should not make any attempt to explain it as a result of sin. And Rabbi Turk took the opposite view. Uh, I, I don't know the whole... The truth of the matter is that it, it, it's, it's an event of such major proportions that th- there can't be any one any one any one explanation that would be a full explanation, a total explanation for it. But it's important to keep this in mind. Why is it important? Let, let me point something out. Why is it important to keep in mind the particular aspect that I raised as an issue? Right? I'll tell you why it's important. Because, you know, today there's a phenomenon. I'm somewhat um, a little bit too outspoken on this, but you got me going. The, today there's a phenomenon of um, Holocaust centers and, and things of that nature. And they have a certain extent of... of um, they, they make a certain measure of contribution in the sense that they pay, make people aware of what other people would like to say never happened anymore, which is a disaster. You know, that, our, that we or that our, the next generation should fall prey after such a calamity to, to, to believing that it never happened. So it serves that function. It also serves the function that for a lot of people it becomes a way of identifying with Judaism. It's interesting. People identify in all kinds of ways with Judaism. And sometimes the identification comes not by the glory of being a Jew, but by some of the most the difficult situations. It works. It, it's, it's, it's part of the neshama of a yid that he relates to it. He rela- a Jew relates to that, and there's an identity that's created that way. And in that way, it also has value. And I, and I don't discount those two elements. But there, there is one part of it that's very disturbing to me personally. And, and the part of it that's disturbing to me is that obviously the goal, or the most meaningful goal, of these Holocaust centers should be to create um, a way that it shouldn't happen again, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, and they they do they are dedicated in terms of goals, never again, quote unquote, mm-hmm. right? But the question in terms of never again requires that we have to be able to delve into understanding all of the reasons. Now, a Jew does not believe that all of the reasons can be explained politically, sociologically, economically, geographically, that all of the, the, those are factors, those are things that all unfortunately fell into the wrong places to create the scenario of what became the Churban in Europe, 
no doubt about it. But to assume that by studying all of those factors, we can then stand guard if the similar situations exist and prevent it from happening again is something that's really the antithesis of Jewish, Jewish philosophy. Because Jewish thinking is that after all of the events, after all of the events, there have to be deep reasons and a measure of, of God's decision not to intervene in those things to happen. And the issue that I want to raise is the issue of, is this point of assimilation, is this point of the pride in being Jew qualitatively, not just because your name is Jew or you were born Jewish, but what are you exactly proud of? What exactly are you proud of? You try, as, as I've tried and as others have tried, to break up an intermarriage and tell a person you shouldn't marry out of your faith because you have to be proud that you're Jewish and then when he asks you what do I have to be proud of? Right? Go give it, the person 20 years of, of life or 30 years of life to know what it means to be proud of. You can't convince them. If the, and if the person doesn't know what to be proud of, there's, there's, there's no way that you're going to convince the person not to marry this person. You're being a bigot, you're being partial, you're being biased, and so on and so forth. And what I'm pointing out is that if we, if we have Holocaust centers, every Holocaust center should scream out the message, let's teach our children what qualitative pride in being Jewish. Because by teaching them qualitative pride, we will be taking away the, a, major, a major element that was responsible for the whole enlightenment and the assimilation and that what, that what breeded a lot of, of what led up to if we won't remember that we're Jewish somebody else will remind us that we're Jewish and to that extent to avoid that in other words to avoid that point you know to avoid that point is missing it somebody once said it very eloquently my wife mentioned it to me I, I never saw it in writing but my wife mentioned it to me six million perished this is what this person said six million perished but that they should not have perished in vain let's make sure that we grow up being proud of who we are and not creating a scenario that others should remind us who we are we, we God forbid don't want that history should repeat itself we're concerned that history should not repeat itself our concern has to take constructive it has to move in constructive ways. And playing politics alone is not going to solve it. Because Ein Od Milvado says that after the politician, still, you still have to face God. You still have to reckon with the God element uh, that's involved, that was involved. And why was that God involved? Why, why was God involved or not involved in the ways that he was is a central question that these centers must ask themselves. I have trouble with, with um, you know, with a lot of these, you know, these shows and all of these things, because, you know, to to witness to witness um, suffering, pain, punishment, and all of those things, and not at the same time to couple it with the lesson, with a message, with a practical with a practical application sometimes can leave a Jew with less than he started off before he watched the program. Because he, he can walk out of the program. I'm not telling you not to watch the program. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that the program has to go along 
with some meaning. When we get up from the program, it's easy to scream never again. It's much more difficult to start a process of what can I constructively do along a spiritual vein, which is a, a, a major factor, if not the factor, that can bring these things to, to bear upon the Jew. What can I do in those areas? Do, do, you, well, do you follow what I'm I saying? I follow you, but uh, there's another prerequisite, and that is understanding the Holocaust in the first place. Um, true. And, 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 That's true. I think we're all, I'm just, uh, we're all struggling with that. And, I'm just and, saying that... that uh, the, the, the curriculum of, of programs and centers has to deal with both together. If you don't deal with both together, you, you get anger, resentment, disbelief, confusion, and you, know, you, you get a lot of that. And uh, it's. Whatever. Now, I wanted to follow up on what you said when you described the, the Haskalah. It's a description of America right now, really. And, you know, so that should be very they disturbing. Didn't, they didn't get away with it as long as we have been getting away with it here. And I had two discussions this last week that were really very difficult in which people said to me the following, if you try to intervene when somebody wants to intermarry, you're butting into your, their business. If you're going to lead your way of life, lead your way of life, but you're going to bring people to go away from you by intervening or something like that, it's none of your business. And another situation where um, somebody told me it's quite common among certain Jews, maybe Reformed Jews, more assimilated Jews, that when somebody dies, it's okay to have cremation. And this happened when I also was watching a show on TV, and as soon as I saw that the Nazis cremated people, to me, to feel that in America now, Jews find it, certain segments of Jews find it perfectly acceptable to do this to each other, all right? And that if somebody should protest, the attitude is, you know, butt out of the people's business, you have no right to. Well, there is. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not are. in favor. I mean, it shows you what's happening in our country right now, and how are we getting away with all this? I'm not, I'm not in favor of cremation, but obviously that the, there's, there's a fallacy in the comparison to cremation because um, the, um, you know, the cremation uh, then was of, of live people. Yeah, the argument of creative cremation. But it's still a horrible thing to burn. I and mean, the person has an ashamer to burn. Okay, that person so voluntarily. Okay, but you're usually dealing. You're usually dealing with people that um, don't deal with concept of neshama or don't know what the concept of neshama is or don't. Do you know what I mean? You see it. Uh, this is a uh, right-wing fanatic. I mean, it's like you just right. have this bridge that you can't cross to, to reach these people. You know, the only thing that you can try, the only thing that you can try, which is, you know, is rhetoric in, in, in these circles, but is never meant, the only thing that you can try is, is that uh, there's no such thing as it's, not a, it's none of your business. We're all one, we all possess one neshama, we all possess one soul, we're all one people. And, and uh, you know, the assumption... You know that the, the assumption that what you do doesn't hurt me, you know, uh, and doesn't affect us as a whole, as a people, is is uh, is contrary to the whole concept of unity and and oneness that they, they themselves. They say you're too sensitive. What? They say you're too sensitive. You know, it's like 
such, what I'm using these just as two examples of where we are in America today. I mean, I thought I was involved in a couple of isolated incidents, and I found out that these things were very common. It wasn't just a particular Well, how about the statistic that there were more children aborted in Israel since its independence than people that died in the Holocaust? Hmm. It's in statistics. Also, oh, m- maybe one million uh, children as compared to the children in the Holocaust. Abortions, abortions. So it makes you wonder how long got You know, it's uh, you know it. it it's a scary thing. Okay, any other questions? The main thing is we can't do very much about somebody else, but what can I do about myself? Well, you do something about yourself, and then you find that half of your friends think that you have, uh, you know, gone off the deep end. Why do you have to, uh, so you know, <laughs> why worry about it? Well, they're true. mistaken. So that's go ahead, you're you know, ready to go.